God's grace and peace to you, dear people, again tonight. I'm blessed to see your smiling faces. It's good to be in the house of the Lord together. I look forward to these opportunities, and I trust that you do as well. I trust that you're here not out of obligation, but because you view it as an opportunity. As Brother Luke mentioned, we may not always have these opportunities. We don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future, and that gives us strength as we look into the future. And yet it's true that the day of opportunity to the day of grace at one day will no longer exist. But we have this moment today, and I trust that you are making the most of the moments God has given you. I also noticed the glorious moon, spectacular moon, uh, as I was driving to church this evening, and it, and it really uh, met a need in my heart. Uh, for those of you who are preachers, you understand the, the feelings of anticipating the pulpit and what goes along with that, and I was having those feelings, and, and then I saw the moon. And it was sort of, to me, it just felt like a love note from God saying, I got you. I'm with you. Here's my sign. And so then I thought of Psalm 8. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth who has set thy glory above the heavens. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon, and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? Doesn't that kind of put us in our rightful place? When you look around and see all the grandeur, and you see all the spectacular things that God has created, and, and then you think about yourself, and we feel so small, and yet, and yet God chose to make us in his own image, God chose to gift us with his Holy Spirit, things that no other creation can boast. And when I think about that tonight, I'm, I'm humbled. I invite you to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 for a text this evening. As we consider the ministry of reconciliation... Our text is taken specifically from verses 18 through 21, but I'd like to begin with verse 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, whenever you see a behold... In the scripture, you dare not say it with a monotone. Behold, all things are become new. No, no, you can't. It, it's, it's an exclamation. Uh, the writer is, is showing some surprise. It's almost like, I can't believe this. What? It's that type of thing. And so the apostle says, Old things are passed away. Behold, check this out. All things are become new to the one who is in Christ. Verse 18, and all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. There's the title for tonight. The ministry of reconciliation. Something God has given to us as believers. To wit, or that is, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God." For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 
the ministry of reconciliation. A key verse tonight is, is verse 18. And all things are of God. He, now he's saying that in the context, obviously, of the previous verse, verse 17, that we are a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. And all things are of God. Or in other words, he's saying that this is from God. This new creature, all things becoming new, this is simply a gift from God. This is not something that you can earn. You can't buy your way into this. There's nothing that you bring to this. It's not a one, two, three, you got it, you're a new creature. It's not that at all. All of this, the Apostle Paul is writing, is a gift from God. Who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation and so this word reconcile, reconciliation, is a big part of the message tonight. What does it mean? To reconcile is to, uh, to change thoroughly, to make friendly, or to make harmonious again. Okay, so it implies that there was a beautiful relationship. It implies that something was bright, and now something is wrong, and to reconcile is to make it right again to make it friendly, to make it harmonious, to change thoroughly, to bring back to what was. In my little handy dictionary of the Bible that I keep on my desk back at home, it defined reconciliation in this way. The change of relationship between God and man based on, listen to this, the changed status of man through the redemptive work of Christ. You get that? It's based on the changed status of man through the redemptive work of Christ. And we'll look at that more later. Along with that, it defines it this way. Enmity between God and sinful man is removed by the death of Christ and appropriated, there's one of those words, what does it mean? To take possession of. To take possession of by the sinner through faith. This evening, we would like to look at this passage in this way. Three points. First of all, the motive. Secondly, the ministry. And thirdly, the mystery. The motive, the ministry, and the mystery. Now, motive is something that causes a person to act. We'll, we'll ask someone sometimes, so... Why did you do that? What was your motive? What is behind why you did what you did? It's the motive. It's, it's what causes a person to act. And I want to ask you this evening, what motivates you to be a minister of reconciliation? I'm talking to a group of believers, right? What motivates you to be a minister of reconciliation? What motivates you to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ? Or simply, what motivates you to be a believer? Why are you a Christian? What is your motive? What is the, what is the driving factor behind who you are? Turn to Romans chapter 5 as we think about this. As you think about what motivates you to be a believer, what motivates you to be a minister of reconciliation, is it because of something that, that you have done? Is it because of something that, that you feel like you can do? Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. 
But God commendeth or demonstrated his love toward us. Notice the direction there. God toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. What motivates you? And in this passage, I would like for us to notice the before and after snapshots. We see snapshots here. One is before and one is after. And I want us to first of all look at that before snapshot. Who we were before Jesus Christ changed us. Who we were. What does it say? Verse 6. It says, we were ungodly. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Oh, by the way, these verses are talking about me. These verses are talking about you. This is one of those passages where we can read sometimes and we start picturing people in New York City or L.A. Or we start picturing that person covered in tattoos or the druggie or you name it. talking about me. It's talking about you. We were ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 6. We were sinners. Verse 8. While we were yet sinners. We were the object of God's wrath. Verse 9. We are now justified by His blood and saved from wrath. Through him. We were enemies. We were God's enemies. Verse 10. For if when we were enemies. And once again, I say we can look at those verses and say, well, okay, like an enemy? Am I an enemy? Was I an enemy of God? Not. Well, did you stand in opposition to what the Word of God clearly revealed? Yeah, you were an enemy. What, ungodly? And we want to we kind of excuse ourselves a bit when we look at that. Dear people, remember that we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That's what Paul writes in Ephesians 2. It is who we are. We are not sinners because we sin as much as we sin because we are sinners. Each one of us is a sinner in need of a Savior. We are by nature the children of wrath, even as others. And so that levels the playing field, as it were. I need Jesus. I need salvation just as bad as the homosexual, just as bad as the prostitute, just as bad as the druggie, just as bad as the drunkard. I need Jesus that bad. You do too. Because I am a sinner by nature. I'm a sinner. And that levels the playing field. And so, dear people, I want you to understand there is nothing that you can bring to the table of salvation, as it were, to up your chances that you don't that you don't have any brownie points you can bring because you need Jesus. You need Jesus. And I think sometimes in our, in our conservative Mennonite circles, we can miss that a bit. We somehow have this feeling that because I was born in a Christian home or a Mennonite home or because I dress right, because I button that button, because I, you fill in the blank, somehow I'm further along like... I don't need it quite as bad. Like, I can be a good person and go to church and, and life is okay. And I'm just telling you, you won't find that in the Bible. It is not the case. Notice 
once again who we were. Verse 6, it says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Oh, we were also powerless. What does that mean in due time? (laughs) Paul's writing, at just the right time. What time was that? When we were powerless. When we were without strength. When we had nothing to offer. And see, over and over again, when you read through the Gospels, when you read the, uh, the, uh, the Gospel of Salvation, you realize that it is all about God. It is what He brings. It is Him reaching out to us. It is not us. And so we sing that song, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew He moved my soul to seek Him seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee, you see. We think we have something to do with it. Oh yes, we are called to believe. It is an act of faith. But behind it all is God stirring our hearts, fanning the flame, bringing things into our life that that draws us to Him. When we were yet without strength, at just the right time, Christ died for us. That's who we were. Notice now the snapshot afterwards. And this should definitely put a smile on your face. We are justified, verse 9. We are now justified by his blood. Once again, that's one of those terms that we hear in church, right? We don't use it a lot in everyday language, not on the job. Are you justified? I'm justified. You know, we don't use that a lot. But we hear it in church. What does it mean? To justify is to prove or to show to be just, right, reasonable, or it's to pronounce free from guilt or blame. In other words, through Jesus' death on the cross, through the shedding of his blood, we are freed from the guilt of the past. It no longer has control over us. We are free. We are not in bondage to that anymore. And so when we are justified, our record has been wiped clean. Our slate is clean, as it were. We can stand before Jesus Christ free and clear and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And God declares us righteous. Takes me back to the story in Exodus when the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt. And God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And that concept of the blood working on our behalf and cleansing us and declaring us free moves right on through the scriptures into the New Testament. And we claim it today, brothers and sisters. And so, as we think about being justified, I've heard before that justified means just as if I had never sinned. And I, 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 I get the drift. I, I understand what they're trying to say, but I think it's far too shallow. It's far too shallow. I believe it misses the point because I don't know about you, but I have sinned a lot. (laughs) I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I have sinned a lot, and that is exactly what makes my justification so astounding because I have sinned a lot. I have strayed from God. I have done many immoral things, and yet through the blood of Jesus Christ, He declares me righteous. And so I believe justification truly means to me that Although you have sinned, although you have sinned terribly, yet God declares us righteous when he sees the blood of Christ applied on our lives. Wow. Is that not powerful? Is that not beautiful? And so Romans 3.24 says, We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Thinking about grace... You know, mercy, mercy and grace, we use those terms some, mercy and grace. Mercy 
is God withholding from us what we do deserve. Grace is God giving us everything that we don't deserve. You see, we deserve death. There is a penalty for sin. The wages of sin is death. But God has given us grace. God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, once again, the snapshot after. We are saved, verses 9 and 10. We shall be saved from wrath through him. Verse 10, we shall be saved by his life. You know, were it not for God's great plan of salvation, we would all be doomed. Life would be pointless. Life would be hopeless. And eternal death would be our end. But through Jesus' death on the cross, through the shedding of his blood, we are saved from the wrath that we so rightly deserve. We are saved. Once again, the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. The gift of God is eternal life. That's what we receive. We are saved. Well, we are reconciled. Verses 10 and 11. Much more being reconciled. Verse 11, it says, We now joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Now, let me just share a little opinion I have here, okay? So, we have the word atonement here um, in the King James. I, I have a little bone to pick with that because atonement here, it's the only time we find the word in the New Testament. And in pretty much every other version, it's rendered reconciliation. Atonement is, is very much an Old Testament word. In fact, you will notice, if you look into the Greek of this, you will notice that when they covered the ark with pitch back in Genesis, when Noah and his sons covered the ark with pitch, that is that word atonement. They covered the ark. Atonement. And you also know that when man sinned in the Old Testament, that their sin had to be covered. And it was covered how? It was covered by the shedding of blood of a, a bull or a goat or a sheep. Or, okay? And their sin was covered. It was atoned for. Atonement. But dear people, we have something to sing about because our blood, our sin is no longer just simply covered. But when, when John the Baptist saw Jesus walking down that road, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Our sin is no longer just simply covered, but our sin through the blood of Jesus Christ is taken away. It's erased we are reconciled. We are reconciled. Colossians 1, 21 and 22 reads this way. And you that were sometimes alienated, and remember that doesn't mean that, oh, every once in a while you were alienated. No, it means at one point, at one time, before Christ, you were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. We are reconciled. We are joyful. We notice that already in verse 11. But we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see what has changed? Do you see what has changed? You see, before this beautiful work of salvation, we were enemies to God. The relationship was severed. We were sinners. We were powerless. There was nothing we could do. But now, through the blood of Jesus Christ, through His death on the cross, we now joy in God. Do you see how that has been changed? Reconciliation, to change thoroughly, to make harmonious again. It takes us back to the Garden of Eden. And we'll look at that in just a moment. But you understand the beautiful, warm, rich relationship that Adam and Eve had 
with God in the garden. It was a sinless experience, a shameless experience. That all changed. But through Jesus Christ, we once again can now joy in God. Notice what God did. What God did. Let's turn back to our text here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. What God did, verse 18, it says that God has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. I want you to notice the direction that is going. God reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. You see, by man's choice, the relationship was severed. Notice that we are reconciled to God, not the other way around. In fact, we notice that three times here in this text, verse 18, we are reconciled to himself by Jesus Christ. Verse 19 says, reconciling the world unto himself. Verse 20 says, be ye reconciled to God. Okay? In every situation, it is clear that man has been reconciled to God, not God to man. Once again, remember what I said earlier, that the change of relationship between God and man based on the changed status of man through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. God hasn't went anywhere. Man was the one who severed the relationship and walked away. God is, has been there all the time. In fact, there in the Garden of Eden, we had this beautiful, rich, warm relationship between God and man. And we have the story there in, in chapter 3 where God comes walking in the cool of the day to fellowship with Adam and Eve. What happened? What happened? He, where were they? God says, where are you? Where have you went? I'm here again. Just like I was yesterday, I'm here. Where are you? You see, God didn't go anywhere. Man did. And reconciliation is bringing man back to God. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. You were a sheep going astray. Peter writes, but now have ye returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. You see, in both of those examples from Scripture, we have man, pictured as sheep, man walking away and then coming back to God. Just a little illustration here. Sometimes in our singing, we can sing songs that are not completely theologically sound. And, and I'm not trying to split hairs here or, or make it difficult for you to sing with a clear conscience, okay? That's not what... But, but I, I thought about this. There at Ebenezer, we sing the song, Arise, my soul, arise, shake off thy guilty fears. And you probably know the song as well. Uh, but the last verse starts with, My God is reconciled, his pardoning voice I hear. And, and that has come to me recently that that's not exactly correct. We are the one that's reconciled to God. And so I thought, well, maybe I could just take a, a little pencil and, and scribble out that in, in my song but in, in book and, and, and write, I have been reconciled. God's pardoning voice I hear. <laughs> it might would create a little confusion as we sing it. But, but just for whatever it's worth, sometimes we can sing some songs that are not exactly theologically sound. And that stood out to me as I was pondering this thing of reconciliation and who was reconciled to who. That's what God did. Let's notice here what God gives. And by the way, we're still talking about our motivation, okay? We're going to get to the other points here soon, and they're not going to be as long. But what motivates you to be a believer? What motivates you to be a minister of reconciliation? What does God give? Verse 18 reads this way. He has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, he has committed unto us the word or the message of reconciliation. And I say, what a responsibility. I mean, what a joy. How wonderful, but what a responsibility. 
freely we have received, freely we must give. And, and truly, the gift of salvation is just that. It is a gift. It is a gift. Freely we have received. Freely we are then called to give. And I ask you this evening, how are you doing with your ministry? You understand that as a believer, you have the ministry of reconciliation. God has given you that ministry. In fact, it should be your number one mission in life to be a minister of reconciliation, calling men and women back to God. And I would venture to say that if that is not your number one mission in life, that you need to check your mission in life. God has called you to be a minister of reconciliation. And in fact, he shouldn't have to twist your arm for that to happen. But because of what he has done for you through Jesus Christ, that should be flowing out of you. That should be driving you. That should be motivating you. Clearly, it is the unmerited mercy and grace of God, along with our personal experience with him that motivates us to be a minister of reconciliation. Look at verse 11 here in chapter 5. The Apostle Paul says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Or, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we also make it our goal to persuade men to experience the same. And it, that is written in the context of the coming judgment of God. That one day we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And I'm not saying that, that we should work out of terror and in, in that we are just scared stiff. No, but knowing that there is a day coming when all men will give an account, we need to be living in light of that. And we need to be sharing this burden with others. Do you know that Christ is coming? Are you living right? Have your sins been washed away in the blood of the Lamb? I say that's a motivator. That's a motivator. Because we know what it is to fear the Lord, we also persuade men. Look at verse 14. For the love of Christ constrains us. In other words, the love of Christ compels us. We have to tell others. We have to be involved in this mission. Because Christ's love just grips us, grips our hearts to the point where we say, how can I be more active? How can I be more jubilant? How can I show the love of Christ in a, in a daily way? Not because I have to, but because I want to. I can't, I can't hold it back. It's just flowing out of me because I'm so indebted. I'm so indebted. Let's consider for a few moments this ministry. Verse 19, it says, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Not imputing their trespasses unto them. What does that mean? I think we know most of those words, but here we, we stumble upon this word imputing. What is that? Imputation. Impute. What does that mean? It means to put to one's account. It's to reckon something to the account of another. To reckon something to the account of another. Put to someone's account. In other words, what he's saying here is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. He should have, right? I mean, we deserved it. Our sins should, have be counted, should be counted against us. I mean, the wages of sin is death, right? I mean, there is a penalty for sin, right? But God, through Jesus Christ, came not imputing, not counting our sins against us. What? How is that? I understand that imputation is really a banking term. And so, for example, when you go to the bank, when you deposit money at the bank, 
the computer or the teller puts that money to your account, or they put that, they, they put that money to your credit, okay? You bring this money, I want to put so much, and so they, they take that money and they put that to your account. It's a banking term. And so, dear people, when Jesus died on the cross, our sins, as the Scripture says, was imputed to Him. They were put to His account. The Scripture says, The Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Our iniquity was laid on Him. Also, the Apostle Peter writes, He bore our sins in His own body on the tree. Our sins He bore in His body on the tree. Wait a minute, why? Why did He do that? They're my sins. And what is the result of that? The result is that all of my sins have been paid for. God no longer holds my sins against me. God is not a patty-slapping kind of God, God that says, you did that. Oh, another one, check that off. He, he's not like a hawk watching every move and, and counting our sins against him. He's not at all. But all of my sins have been paid for. Why? <laughs> Because by faith, I have trusted in the precious blood of Jesus. I believe the plan of salvation. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I have trusted him as my Lord and Savior. You see, reconciliation, dear people, is based on imputation. I want you to think about that. Reconciliation, this thing of of us being reconciled to God, this thing of making harmonious again, this, this thing of, of to change thoroughly is based on imputation, this thing of, of putting to one's account. For an example, I give you the example of the Apostle Paul, and we find this in his letter to Philemon. It's a beautiful, touching little example here. But you understand that Philemon was Paul's friend, and Onesimus was Philemon's slave. And it appears that Philemon, or Onesimus, it appears that Onesimus had stolen from his master, from Philemon, and then run away to Rome. And I'm told that an offense such as that could have had Onesimus crucified. You know, this story is starting to sound like, like me. Could have had Onesimus crucified. But in the providence of God, Paul met Onesimus in Rome and won him to faith in Jesus Christ. And so then Paul writes this letter to Philemon, encouraging him to forgive Onesimus and to take him back. And then this is what the Apostle Paul says. If he has done anything wrong, if he, has any if he has taken anything from you, I want you to charge that to my account. I'll take care of it. Don't put it on him. Charge it to my account. You see, Paul was so interested in seeing this relationship healed, seeing reconciliation being made, that he said, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll inconvenience myself. I'll pay for it because I want to see this relationship harmonious again. Look at verse 19 and see the heart of God. Just think of the heart of God here. We're talking about this ministry of reconciliation that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing or not counting men's sins against them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. You see, God is continually calling men and women back to Him. Once again, God is not that patty-slapping kind of God. He is not counting our sins against us. God does not keep a record of wrong, but instead He offers forgiveness. He offers mercy. He gives us His grace. He gives us plenteous redemption. Turn to Psalm 130 as we note this. Psalm 130, and just, just ponder 
who our great God is, who our loving, merciful God is. Psalm 130, and we read this. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who should stand? Who should stand? And the resounding answer is no one. No one could stand. If God is a patty-slapping kind of God, if God keeps a record of wrongs, no one would stand that. But David does not stop there. He says, But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mightest be feared. I wait for the Lord, verse 5. My soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say, more than they that watch for the morning. Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him there is plenteous redemption. And he shall redeem Israel, or God's people, from all iniquities. Dear people, that's our God. That's our loving God. That's our merciful God. That's a God that is plenteous in redemption, not counting men's sins against them. Oh, yes, we deserve death. We deserve to have that record of wrong held against us. And yet, he doesn't. Let me just mention this in a very practical sense. It is impossible to reconcile a strained relationship when there is a record of wrongs being kept, whether it's in your head or on paper. Let me say that again. It is impossible to reconcile a strained relationship when there is a record of wrongs that is being kept, whether in your head or on paper. And I was recently made aware of a man who actually does that a man who has a notebook where he keeps a record of wrongs, where he writes, he writes and takes note of what was said, who said it, and what the date was. It's impossible to reconcile a relationship with that kind of an attitude. It's amazing how good some people's memory is really is. It's amazing. You know, you can remember what you want to remember. This is one of those situations where it's good to be a good forgetter. After all, we read in the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, that love keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't operate like that. And there is no better example, dear people, than that of Jesus Christ. We are called to be messengers of reconciliation. Verse 20, let's go back to our text again. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Paul writes, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, or, or it's, it's, it's as if God is making his appeal through us. Can you believe that? <laughs> that God is counting you as a believer worthy to make his appeal through you? We are now ambassadors for God. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. That is the message that we are to be giving. That is the message that we are, are to be leaving with the way we live our life. With the words that we say. With our presence on social media. And on and on and on. Flowing from our life should be the message. Dear people, come back to God. Brothers and sisters in the church, come back to God. My neighbors, my co-workers, come back to God. That is being an ambassador, calling people to harmony once again. You know, an ambassador is one who speaks on behalf of the king. And it's usually in the context of traveling to a foreign country 
on the mission of peace. <laughs> Does that sound spiritual or what? I mean, are, are we not strangers and pilgrims in this country? Uh, this world is not our home. We're just a traveling through, right? Our, our citizenship really is in heaven. But while we are here, we're on a mission from the king, calling people back to God. It's a peacemaking mission. Reconciling men and women back to God. How are you doing with that? How are you doing with that? We beg you on Christ's behalf, come back to God. Let's notice yet this evening this great mystery. We find it in verse 21. This great mystery. For he, that is God, hath made him, that is Jesus Christ, to be sin for us. Perhaps you could say to be a sin offering for us. That's not exactly what it says, but it does fit the, the context of Scripture. In Isaiah 53, we read that his soul shall be made an offering for sin. God hath made Jesus Christ to be sin for us. Who knew no sin? In other words, Jesus Christ was the sinless Son of God. He was our perfect example. He was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. I mean, if this doesn't really make your jaw drop, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him, in Jesus Christ. And I, I'm not here tonight to give you a theological understanding of what this exactly means, and to flesh it all out. But I simply grasp it by faith as best I can and challenge you to do the same. Certainly we see through a glass darkly, but one day face to face. And I look forward to that day when some of this will be revealed more clearly. But notice here what it's saying that God hath made Jesus Christ his son to be sin or a sin offering for us who knew no sin. Why? So that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. It reminds me of 1 Timothy 3.16 where we read, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Or beyond all question, great is this mystery of godliness that God was manifested or revealed in the flesh, he was justified in the spirit, he was seen of angels, he was preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. And, and Paul writes to Timothy, that is beyond question a mystery. Like, we don't understand it. We can't, in our finite minds, grasp what that all means. But our focus here in this mystery point is the miraculous exchange that God makes with man. I say it's a miraculous exchange. You see, at the cross, all of our sin, like we mentioned earlier, was put to his account. Our sin was not imputed to us, but he bore our sins. All of our sin was put to his account, and here we read that all of our righteous, all of his righteousness was put to our account. 1 Peter 2.24, I quoted this a bit earlier, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye are healed. And so, in this miraculous exchange that takes place, the sinless becomes the sacrifice, and the sinner becomes a saint. Does that not blow your mind? Does that not break your heart? Once again, I say, we bring nothing to the table when it comes to salvation. This is a gift of God. And in fact, like the Apostle Paul writes, it is an unspeakable gift. We can't even find words to describe it. The sinless one becomes the sacrifice, and the sinner becomes a saint.
<laughs> no doubt the songwriter had some of this in mind when he wrote, Behold, the wonderful exchange our Lord with us doth make. Lo, he assumes our flesh and blood, and we of heaven partake. And certainly he also had in mind probably the incarnation of, of God becoming man and, and walking on this earth. <laughs> but certainly that is, that is tied very closely to the work of salvation and to this mystery As I think about that, the words of another song come to my mind. Long, long ago, in a faraway place, rough, rugged timbers were raised to the sky. There hung a man suspended in space. And though he was blameless, they left him to die. Just to think of the cross moves me now. The nails in his hands, his bleeding brow, to think of the cross moves me now. It should have been me. It should have been me. Instead, I am free. He put an end to my guilt and despair, turned bitter hating to sweet peace and love. Even the men that put him up there were offered forgiveness and life from above. Just to think of the cross moves me now, the nails in his hands, his bleeding brow. To think of the cross moves me now. It should have been me. It should have been me. Instead, I am free. I am free. If that doesn't move you, dear people, when you think of what Jesus Christ has done for you, has done for me, and we are so undeserving, When we were yet ungodly, in due time, Christ died. When we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Let me just, in conclusion, put the thrust of this message in a nutshell, very much of a nutshell. But God and man were once friends. And then... God and man became enemies. It was man, not God, that severed the relationship. But it was God, not man, that took the first step in reconciling the relationship. Therefore, dear people, it is our highest calling. And it is in our best interest to accept these terms of peace and in turn be ministers of reconciliation, calling men and women back to God. Let's pray.